Welcome to Hillside Community Church's weekly podcast. We're glad that you've chosen to listen to this week's message and hope that it ministers to you today. Hillside's located in Keller, Texas, and if you would like to know more about us or to listen to previous recordings, please visit us at yourhillside.com. And now this week's message. That's the song of songs right there. That is the song of songs. And no song could be better to hear than to, than to as a prelude to Colossians 1, 15 to 20. Just can't be one. You know, Ella is virtually blind. Uh, and, um, but her mind and heart are crystal clear. <laughs> crystal clear. That's what this series is about, that we're doing. Looking for clarity. So if you're seeking faith or you're struggling with your faith, uh, not sure if you want to believe, not sure what to believe, um, we've decided to just sort of re- dig down and look at the things that are most important to life. We've seen them in Colossians chapter 1. We looked at the gospel very clearly. We looked at what the spiritual life is we started looking at Jesus last week, and that'll grow. And Paul's argument in Colossians, for those whose faith is sort of fuzzy, um, is you don't need anything more than Christ for salvation, for a relationship with God, and for your spiritual life. You don't need anything more than him. There's no book. In other words, it's not Jesus and. And I wonder how that hits you. I wonder how it hits you and how how it would really play out in your life when you hear me say, it's all you need. And I would imagine for most of us, we've got to take a step back and go, is that really true? Is it really true right now with all the complicated things about religion and faith in my own life that all I really need, spiritually speaking, and thus for everything else, is Jesus Christ? Because that's Paul's argument. And i got to tell you, our mission at this church, the reason we phrase our mission this way is to help people discover who Jesus really is and to become just like him. Why do we say it that way? Because a lot of people have ideas about Jesus. They have notions about him. They have even lofty thoughts about him. They're not high enough. They're not high enough. You've got to have a view of him that is so high that it makes, it relativizes every other notion, thought, or idea you have. That's how high. And and so Colossians, Paul is helping us look directly at Jesus. In fact, in Colossians 1 and verse 28, here's what Paul says. We proclaim him admonishing every man, teaching every man with all wisdom that we may present every man complete in Christ. Complete. Total. Nothing else needed. Nothing. I was just, I just had one of those, you know, you're preaching, and then... Dumb things come into your mind while you're thinking about things because you can't help it. You can't help all that. You know how things. And I was thinking, there's a song that uh, John Mayer wrote, and in it he goes, uh, and one of that is called uh, "Something's Missing." And at the end of it, he goes, "Why does why why does everything I think I need come with batteries?" That was that's one of the lines in the song, and it hit me right there. 
Because we think we need so much stuff. And in that song, something's missing. Nothing's enough. So Paul says you could be complete in Christ. And then he says in 2 Corinthians 4, you've got to hear this. He says, if the gospel is veiled, in other words, if you can't see it clearly, he says it's veiled, it's fuzzy to those who are perishing. In other words, life's at stake in what you see. Then he says, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they may not see, here it is, the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Satan will do anything he can to keep your picture of Jesus just below what it really is because that is what will ruin you. He's doing everything he can to blind you to the reality of who Jesus is. That's the essence of his existence. And so, um, Paul gives us in Colossians 1 the most beautiful picture there is in the New Testament. The most beautiful that there is. It's a work of art. It's literally a hymn. It's a work of art. It's a hymn written to explain just how beautiful Jesus is. And it looks square at him with, n- with nothing sort of diffusing the image. You get, his, you get clarity and you get his majesty all in this text. It's sort of the experience of being at like an, an IMAX theater, surround sort of experience. Ah, isn't that a great sound? Come on, we all love that sound. We love that sound. I wish there was a greater sound I could play that would prepare you for Colossians 1, 15 to 20. I wish there was, but that's the greatest I can think of. I didn't even think of it. The tech team did, so it's as good as it gets. All right, um, so we're looking at this hymn, and I'm just going to tell you now, I'm going to seriously, seriously leave you hanging today. Okay, we're going to get to a certain point, and you're going to say, well, so what? And I'm going to leave you hanging. You have to stick with me, all right? All right, so we are looking at this hymn, and here's a picture of the whole hymn. It's not designed for you to read. It's tiny, I understand. Uh, but it's not designed for you to read the whole thing. Uh, so here's what you have. You got two parts to this hymn. The first part is here. Second part is here. And in between is a transition Verse 17 of the transition looks backwards. 18 looks forward. It's a hymn, very concise, filled with theology. Um, This past week, we looked at the first part. You can see the parallelism. Whatever's going on in the first section is paralleled in the second. Because you've got him firstborn over all creation here. You have him firstborn of the dead here. So two different images, same person whole different dynamic going on. In the first one, you have Christ over the cosmos. Christ who is the image of the invisible God, firstborn over all creation. All things were created by him, through him, for him, in him, everything. So he is the center of everything. And at the base of that, the the key here is he's the image of the invisible God. There's a God you cannot see. You cannot know him. You cannot understand him. You cannot relate to him unless you get a picture 
And according to Paul, Christ is that picture, and it's the only picture you need. All you need to see to relate to God is in Christ. You need nothing else. So, we see God through Christ in creation. He's the, and Paul tells us he's the center of everything. He's the center of all reality. And we looked at this last week. Nothing exists, exists without him. Nothing is held together without him. Nothing has meaning without him. He is outside of all creation. He is over every spiritual power and every material element. You have no beginning. You haven't even started if you don't know him, according to Paul. You have no direction. You're going nowhere if he's not in your life. Even if you achieve some of your goals, you still end up with nothing in the end if he's not the center of your life. That's what that first paragraph is saying. So let's say you do reach your financial goals. Let's say you do get the house of your dreams or the job of your dreams. Let's say you keep your figure into your 50s. Let's say you do. You won't, but let's say you do. Let's say you do. You still haven't. You still have nothing if he's not at the center of your life. So while science is seeking a theory for everything, Paul is saying Christ is the fact of all reality. Now, we transition to the second part of this hymn, and the transition begins with this phrase here, and I want to show it to you by itself because it's a strange way to go into part two. It's a strange way to go into it. And the focus is the church. And you might not be expecting that. I don't think you would be. So we go from the cosmos, the world, to the church. That's a huge move. And then, if you go to the end of the, the whole thing, if you go to the end of it, look where you end up. Say that out loud. The cross. You end up at the cross. So look at, look at our picture. You go from the cosmos, the highest point. He's over and above all reality. Then you get to the church, and everybody's got to stop and go, well, how does the church fit into that picture? And then the second thing is you get to the cross. You almost get to the very lowest of low. You get to the, the most humiliating, painful, horrific place. How do you go from cosmos through church to cross? Don't you want to know that? Because that's incredible. The highest of highs to the lowest of lows. In six verses, all reality put right in a one picture. Now, here we go. Let's look at verse 18 as a whole. He is all the head of the church. And who is? Look at this. Same who is. So we're dealing with the same person. We're dealing with the same principal actor is in the cosmos. The creator is now uh, the beginning here. There's a new, there, 
there's a new beginning. And when you read this text, your first question ought to be, well, wait a minute, I thought everything began back there. I thought you were over everything at the beginning back there. Uh Uh-uh, no, there's a new beginning. There's some kind of other beginning. And we pretty much figure out real fast, there's a new creation. There's a recreation. Whatever was created needed recreating. That's what's happening here. Something new has to come into existence. Okay, you say, well, what was that? Well, Paul leaves out, in the, it's huge, but Paul leaves out in the middle of this hymn what caused the devastation. There was something devastating, so devastating that it rocked the cosmos. It rocked the universe to the point that the, we, had to, we needed to, to, to recreate, God says. So, so sin enters the world and we have this sort of fall and this disruption to creation. And then all of a sudden, not only do we have this interruption into creation, we have the incarnation, we have Christ coming into the creation because notice this phrase, the firstborn from the dead. Now this language here takes you all the way back to the picture where we saw firstborn up here. So we're dealing with the same person and we're dealing with the same heights. He's still prominent, but he's prominent in this piece, in the recreation. He's prominent. He's firstborn in the old creation, the first one, and he's prominent and preeminent in the second one, whatever it is. Now, we learn real fast that this firstborn from the dead is the resurrection. We learn right here. So all of a sudden in this, in this hymn, the gospel is embedded in it because if he rose from the dead, what does that mean? It means he died. So that means you have the death and the resurrection. You have the gospel. Here it is embedded in one line right there. So he's first born over creation. Now he's first born in this new creation, this recreation. You say, what caused the new creation? Paul is saying right here, the resurrection did. The resurrection did. It is where the weight of the new reality is. Whatever happened to the world required the creator to enter history and die. You go from being creator to head of the church to to crucified. the eternal one, dead, and then risen. So the gospel now is embedded in the picture. And it continues. He entered history, he dies, and he rises again, and the resurrection brings about the possibility of new life for everything that has gone wrong. Paul is putting squarely on Christ the weight of renewal and redemption and creation and recreation. That's the gospel. And only the one who created the universe could enter the universe, die and rise to create something new. Only he could do it. So that's the story behind the universe of the cosmos. That's the story behind the cosmos. Uh, 
That means when you're looking at the picture, you say, well, what, if, if all we had was the creation piece, we'd all be standing around going, wow, what a big God. He's really, really big. Look how high up he is. Look how supreme he is. Look how powerful he is. But this here gives us backstory. This here, in fact, you can't understand creation until you understand what he's doing down here. We don't even understand all of it until then. And I'll explain that to you here in just a second. Remember, starting this whole thing is Christ is how you see God. So how are you going to see God? Well, you're going to see him, first of all, as creator, but now you're going to see God as a redeemer. That we haven't seen. That we haven't seen yet. So the gospel... The gospel, in this line here, we learn something about God we could not learn in the first paragraph. You couldn't know it. If Christ is telling us who God is, we couldn't know who he is fully until we get to this paragraph here and see that this same eternal God could be dead. That's something you couldn't have known. So God is being revealed in a bigger and more profound way. Now, why? Why is this going to happen? Just hang with me. We're just building line by line. All I'm doing is showing you a picture. All I want you to do is see the picture. So that, why? Why is he going to be risen from the dead? He's going to be risen from the dead. Here's the reason. So that he himself will come to have first place. That's a new... That's the only time this word is used in the New Testament. It's a different place. It's a new place. This is not the same place as the the supremacy over cosmos. This is a new place that only death and resurrection can bring. There's a new heights God has gone to. There's a new supremacy in who Christ is because he has died and risen. First place now in everything. Well, what's the everything? Well, if you only had the first paragraph... It's just creation. In the second paragraph, though, we learn there's got to be a new beginning, something else. God can't just be supreme over creation. He's got to be supreme over recreation, too. That's what Paul is saying. There's a a lot of other things in the every now. Before, it was just a created world. Now it's a fallen one. Hey, God, can you still rule after it's screwed up? That's a good question, isn't it? Hey, God, you still in charge after everything went south? That question hangs over. How many people's heads does that question hang over? And here's what Christ is saying. Oh, yes. Here's what God is saying. Here's what Paul is saying. Yes, he has come to have first place even in those things through his death and resurrection. That's why the weight of the death and resurrection, the gospels, the core of Christianity. That's something he did in history. So in everything, he's going to be first place. Now, this includes now his preeminence, his supremacy includes over sin and over brokenness and over disasters and over nuclear boneheads. All of it. All of it. There's a whole new dimension to his supremacy now. And that's going to force us to ask a question that we're going to come back to in a couple weeks, but I don't want to miss throwing the question out, even though we're not going to address it. How is he more preeminent? 
what does that preeminence look like? Where do I see it? Those questions are answered in this text. But we're not addressing them today. We're still just looking at the picture. So, what are you telling us, God, about this picture that we couldn't have gotten in the first paragraph? Ah, here it is. So you say, okay, I see it. Then you get to verse 19. For, let me give you the reason for it all. Now I'm going to give you the reason for it all. Why the creation, why the fall, and why a dead Savior and resurrected. For <laughs> it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. That's how the text began. Christ is the image of the invisible God. In Christ, all that God is, is in Christ. But if God only created, we wouldn't have seen all that's in there. So whatever this fullness is now, something, some part of it was missing in just as a creator. We would never have known God as a redeemer if sin hadn't entered the world. Do you understand? There's things about God we would have never known. We'd have never known what a lover he is. And I'll, hang with me and you're going to see. That, here's what God is saying. Let me tell you what pleasure means. It pleased. It pleased God. Here's the way it actually reads. It pleased God for the fullness to dwell in him. In other words, when I started this whole thing out, I wanted everything about me to be in him, and it's in him. He is me. And I wanted that to be expressed and I could express a good portion of it in creation, but I can express all the rest of it in wonder of it in a recreation after it all goes out. That means, Hillside, there's two sides to the evil argument. One side says God can't exist if there's evil in the world. Paul says evil in the world shows that he does. I just ruined your lunch. I just ruined your lunch. Again, we're raising more questions than we're answering, but stay in tune with the text. Keep your eyes on Jesus and watch. So that means it pleased God. You know what it means to please the word please in the New Testament? Whenever it's used. Whenever God is pleased about doing something, he purposes to do it. So please doesn't just mean God takes delight in doing it. He determines that he's going to do it. It's delight and determination. In other words, God, God purposes what he pleases. What, what pleases him, he purposes to do. And it pleased him for, for his fullness to be demonstrated in Christ, and that could only be seen if he not only created, but entered the creation. And you see something else about him in his death and resurrection. That's what he's arguing here, so... That means it was always God's intention. It was always God's intention. This is really important here. This is sort of a transitional moment. It was always God's intention never to just create. It was always to recreate. Okay, this is important. 
Okay? God's decision to create in the first paragraph almost de- was determined that he would have to recreate at the same time. Um, so that you can't understand creation without redemption. You can't understand God without redemption. So the goal was always to redeem. And the reason that's important is because I don't want you to think, when you look at the, when you look at the hymn, it looks like it has a downward move. And I just showed you a downward move, and within it there is downward movement. We went from cosmos to church to cross. There's a downward movement. But within the text, this phrase right here, um, firstborn from the dead. Here he was firstborn over creation, and you think that's the highest spot. I mean, the whole text moving downward. Whatever firstborn here means, it must be second tiered. It must be plan B. It must be a lower. Uh-uh, uh-uh, uh-uh. Just the opposite. The resurrection actually takes him to new heights of supremacy. New heights of supremacy. So we're not Start. Most of us think, well, God created. Everything went south. God had to come up with a plan B. Jesus had to die. That's all secondary. Oh, no. That was always the highest point in the picture. The resurrection puts Jesus higher. If, if you can speak that way, he's always been supreme. But nothing makes him more preeminent. That's the weight of the resurrection. It's that moment right there. Look at 2 Timothy. Look at this text right here. Okay, verse 8. 2 Timothy 1, 9 and 10. Verse 1, or verse 8, he says, God, God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which he granted to us in Christ from all, say that out loud, eternity. This was not plan B. From the get-go, God could not have decided to create without at the same time deciding to redeem the same creation he created. It was always the plan to show in Christ God's redeeming love. How do we see it? Now it's been revealed. Clarity. By the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who abolished death, watch this, and brought life, new life. And, here, this is, Hillside, this is a phrase for the weak. He brought immortality to light. He shined light. He brought crystal clarity to what happens to people who are desperate and dying. Christ brings clarity to it. Immortality got a light shined on it. Death, our biggest problem. Yes, Christ is more preeminent now that he has solved that problem than when he was standing over his creation, loving it, and announcing how good it was. Even now, he's more preeminent. we got to get through this. Let's get done here. Verse 19. So look at this phrase here. In him, 
because I want to take you to verse 20, but I don't want to lose the in him at the end of 19. Because remember, we looked at the paragraph last week, and I told you there was three prepositions. The creation was in him. God created in him. He created through him, and he created for him. All three of those. That was a nice, tight package. It begins with Christ. Uh, it, hap- it, hap- it begins in Christ, it happens through Christ, and it happens for him. That's tight package. Well, here comes the tight package again. These same three, very same three prepositions. It's in him, it's by him, and it's for him. Same prepositions. That means the redemptive piece carries all the weight, and because of the resurrection, resurrection more weight than just the created cosmos. Okay? Now when you get here, you get to this verse here, you, and you see that. That, in other words, as tight as creation is in Christ, that's how tight salvation is in Christ. Uh, you say, what, what'd you have to do, God? What'd you have to do? Well, now we get the clearest picture and the thrust of this text is God has to reconcile things to himself. Why does he use that word and what does it tell us about the fall and the problem? It just tells you there was a massive, a massive gash in all reality, all creation, not just humans, humans at the forefront, but all of creation, a gash, destructive gash. And it tells us the cosmos is torn apart by sin, all of it. It's dark and it's evil and it's chaotic. That's what Paul means by we were in the kingdom of darkness. So reconcile means that it's all estranged. Imagine you create something and every single bit of it runs from you, rebels from you, all of it, from atoms to atom, rebels and runs from you. Think of that feeling. Because the word reconcile means somehow somebody's got to come in and mediate here. Somebody's got to bring these enemies because now they're enemies. So in other words, we didn't slip into the fall. We jumped into it. We said out loud, we don't want to be in Christ. We don't want, we don't need him and we're not doing anything for him. That's what we said. That's how sin entered the world and that's why the world is the way it is. Those three things right there. We can do it ourselves. We are our own beginning, we are our own middle, and we are our own end. That's what we said to God. So we were hoping, and and listen, all the forces of evil were on our side. All the forces of evil sided with us. And now you got all the forces of evil and us all opposed to God. We all turned on God. We came under their spell. What we thought would give us freedom enslaved us. Couldn't help it. What we thought would bring life brought death. Verse 21 in this text, which is a little bit later on, Paul explains that reconciliation problem. We were alienated from God and we were hostile. We were enemies. We didn't want anything to do with them. How did we demonstrate our hostility? We did what we wanted to do. Even though it was evil and against him. That's the seriousness of which the universe is fractured by our decision. Now, this is the high point here, and you've got to think about this for just a second, and then I'm going to close it really fast. Here it is. If you're God, if you're God, you think, this is too much. 
maybe this is too much. I mean, I started out with this really beautiful thing. I was hoping it was going to go well. It didn't go well. You think, you know, we might think that way. They don't want me. They chose to get rid of me. Everything I made hates me. Has rebelled against me. Even all the powers of the universe, all the evil powers of the universe are at odds with me. This is the point where you say God lost all his friends. And he made them. He didn't just meet them. He made them. This is where you say, if you're God, the whole world is against me. You ever have that feeling? About Wednesday morning every week, I have it. Before 9.30 every Wednesday morning, I have that feeling. And you know how crappy that feeling is? Can you imagine how much, how God felt it? The universe I made. I made, here's God, here's what he says. Here's what he says, though. This is him. He says, I made the cosmos. And look what else he says. I will make peace. I'll make peace. I'll do it. I'll fix it. Because I'm a creator, but I'm more than that. I'm a redeemer, too. I'm that, too. I can create it, I can fix it. And then verse 20, and we're going to end with this right here. He says, how am I going to do that? How are we going to create peace? Through, look at this, the blood and the cross. So in this paragraph, you've got three words. You've got the word death, blood, and cross. And that's a blood. This is what, it's going to take a bloodbath. It's going to take an all-out war. God's going to declare war literally on himself to solve this problem. Now you say, what are we going to do with this bloody cross? And what does it mean for me and how I live and interpret my whole life and get crystal clear on my faith? I told you I was going to leave you hanging. Here's the hanging part. Next week, that's all we're going to spend time on is what that peace means. All I wanted you to have is a picture, and I just want you to dwell on it. Just bow your heads for me, would you? Father, as we come into your presence, we realize at least this today. History has a purpose. There's a God behind the universe and all that's going on that's absolutely in control. And we can be a part of that history because of what you have done, because of the gospel, because of the death and resurrection of Christ. We actually can become a part of that history back into relationship with you in your ultimate purposes, which is what we so desperately need. Father, open our eyes to that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.